We have stumbled upon by grace, I think, a model of education that Christians need to take seriously. I don't know how aware you are of what the probabilities are of a Christian young person going to university and keeping their faith intact. It's very low. Most of them will come out with a damaged faith, about 80% of them, and then take 20 years to recover. You do come back. Those of you who've got children currently in the wilderness, they will come back, but it took me 20 years. Um, And some 15 years ago or so, God brought six of us together in Ottawa that we, we didn't even know we were all in the same university. And he had assembled a really remarkable group of people um, scattering around the continent now. But uh, we started, two of us having lunch together, basically moaning about the university, um, the multiversity. But after a few weeks, obviously, we, we began to feel that we ought to do something more than moan. And we thought, well, there must be other people in the university who think the same as we do. And we could think of one. Um, So we called him, and he brought two more. And that brought two more. We ended up with about half a dozen, and they were quite an extraordinary group. We had John Paul II's canon lawyer. Uh, We had David Jeffrey, who's now at Baylor, and I think one of the best evangelical intellects on the continent. You know, he speaks nine languages. And when he went to Princeton, they said, well, do you want to do physics or medieval English? We'll take you for either. Uh, uh, Graham Hunter is on the board of Touchstone. And if you've tried uh, first things and found it too hard, try Touchstone. I call it first things in English. Um, And it will move you up a grade in terms of arguing in the public sphere. Uh, We had... uh, a classicist who'd spent 15 years every summer in Greece excavating, uh, or Asia Minor, excavating Troy. Uh, in fact, I was the only one who didn't speak not five languages. Uh, I was the dummy of the group. But that's typical of science, isn't it? And so we started a reading group because we'd all seen how students lose their faith during their journey through university. And we decided we'd read everything we could find on the nature of education from a, Christian, from a thoughtful perspective, because we started with the Greeks, with uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and worked our way through to Alastair MacIntyre, basically, in the 20th century. And by the time we had completed that reading program, which lasted several years, every Tuesday morning we had a shameless two-hour breakfast. Um, graduate students started to join us very swiftly, and lots of people came. Uh, no paper trail, no advertising. 20 people turned up every, every Tuesday. On occasions, I think we, we peaked at 19 languages available to us at one meeting. Um, certainly we had Syriac and Aramaic as well as Hebrew and Greek most of the time. So it was a very erudite group. I, it was the best education I've ever had. And then homeschooling moms and dads and graduate students got on our case. Because the graduate students said, well, you're always complaining about our formation. When are you going to do something about it? And the moms and dads from homeschooling said, we need help to get our kids into university safely. And we started talking at homeschooling conferences. How many of you have homeschooling members to your family extended thereof? Yeah, quite a lot. That was an extraordinarily uh, frightening and upsetting experience, going to homeschooling conferences. Because... (laughs) These good folk had realized that the state system is not to be trusted, and I hope you all realize that, that early childhood education is nowadays social engineering. 
uh, you ought not to trust your children to them until they're formed. Then they can go and fight the battle if they're tough enough. But uh, so we went homeschooling conferences, usually to do the, the plenary address, you know, the keynote address. And then we wandered around looking at what they were doing. And of course, these good folk had started teaching and realized it wasn't as straightforward as they thought. And so they started inviting the people who'd wrecked, it in the, wrecked the system in the first place to tell them what to do. Now, that is not smart. Um, so we, that also pushed us. And uh, these two groups, graduate students and parents, wanted us to do something about it. And we said, well, what's needed is a course in the history of ideas. Bible school, by the way, doesn't help you to survive university. Uh, because the Bible is not an acceptable text in most universities now. So you can't start from there. You have to start someplace else. Um, And we said, well, what you need is a history of ideas course taught from the perspective that we are the products of Hebrew and Greek thought modified by the church, which is absolutely true and totally politically incorrect. So there's no way we would get it through the committees in our university because the feminists would stop it. Uh, In fact, when I travel now uh, and talk about the college and secular universities, I know I'm going to get this question. Usually they sit at the back left. There's something deeply um, uh, important about that. And I know what question is going to come. They're going to ask me, what women occur in your History of Ideas course? And I've got an easy way out. I play the dumb scientist and say, well, I'm really just a scientist. Why don't you give me your ten most important women thinkers in the History of Ideas? And I'll tell you if they appear. What do you think happens next? Silence. Dead silence. There aren't ten. Uh, we get Hildegard of Bingen and Hildegard of Bingen and Hildegard of Bingen. And she was a remarkable woman, and one or two others. Uh, but women are far too smart to say I'm going to make a contribution to the history of ideas because that's really like saying I'm going to win the lottery. The odds on it happening are negligible. And women don't do things with negligible outcomes. Um, <laughs> except marry, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, uh, it has worked incredibly. Because I can say that 90% of the students who've taken this course over the last dozen years or more have come out of university with a faith that is solid. Uh, they're not going to be pushed over by uh, sundry professors who don't know what they're talking about. Because the problem is your kids go to university and they're taught by very intelligent people who are very narrowly educated. But the student can't tell when the professor starts pontificating outside his area of competence. When you've taught them the history of ideas, they can. They would laugh at Dawkins. They would never be taken in by the nonsense that he propounds. Um, so, whereas Americans clearly are taken in, just look at the number of them who bought the God delusion, which is rubbish. Uh, I hope you've all uh, seen John Lennox deconstruct uh, uh, Dawkins on YouTube. If not, go look. It's worth seeing and get his book. Uh, the, the God's Undertaker has science buried God. Beautiful little book. So, we started some uh, 14 years ago, and we have no money. Uh, you couldn't write a business plan for this project. We won't teach more than 20 students at a time. We haven't got there yet. Uh, We have whom whom God sends. Um, And only one person gets a minimal salary. The rest of us take what honorarium is available. Uh, I think it's averaged out over the last 
uh, dozen years for me at about $300 a semester, which is hardly highly paid, is it? Um, but we built into it from the beginning uh, the rule, because we didn't want to do it. We were not willingly uh, lined up for this project, that the college would close as soon as it went into the red. Now, that we, we weren't going to start because of that, but a doctor, a lawyer, and an accountant said, we'll make sure it doesn't go into the red if you'll do it. So we started in the church basement, which cost us nothing, and we still own nothing except a $60,000 library. That's the only thing we own. Um, and that was given to us by uh, uh, a foundation. So every time we look as though we're going to go in the red, somebody calls me. Last time it happened, uh, we were going to close that summer because we were going into the red. And a guy called me, I didn't know who he was, and he said, how's your college doing? And I said, pedagogically, wonderfully. But we're going into the red, and that, in our rules, that means we're going to close this summer. He said, how would 25,000 help? I said, I don't know you from Adam. Why are you giving us 25,000? He said, it's not me, it's my favorite aunt, who has just died. And before she died, she said to me, and I love this line, Find out how that young man in Ottawa is doing with his college. I like it. And help him if he needs. <laughs> I like the young man bit best. <laughs> so if you, know, if you have bright kids in your church who are thinking of going to university, not knowing what they want to do, and are thinking about doing psychology, save their souls by forking out the 7,000 tuition and send them to us. Uh, you won't regret it. And certainly they won't. Um, I think the most beautiful thing that happens, the, uh, the next time we nearly went into the, the red, several people had hauled me over the coals for not telling them the time before, but graduate, students who were still accumulating debt in university sent me checks for 100 or $200. Now, that, that really did move me. Uh, that, that's what our students felt about us. And we had another indication of that last year, Edward Tingley and I said, you know, we ought to do a weekend on how to talk about abortion. And so we sent out one email, and a third of our graduates came back to Ottawa for the weekend for that conference on the basis of one email. So that gives you some sense. The other one that would give you a sense of what it's like is we went to a wedding last year of a, a graduate from about 10 years ago. He's a doctor now, a radiation oncologist. Of course, there were several doctors at the wedding, but three-quarters of his class from Augustine 10 years ago came to his wedding. They came from all over the states, from California to Wisconsin to Florida. Uh, they keep in touch. So uh, we need to clone it. It needs to be happening in really every large city. You only need four people who are reasonably educated, and you could do it. Um, we would go bankrupt, of course, because currently we're dependent upon Americans to a considerable degree. Half our students have come from the U.S. And... When the end of the year comes, think of putting us on your charitable giving because we have American charitable status now. Just go to American Friends of Augustine College. Um, I have some cards with it on, I think. Let me just check. Now, it doesn't have that important piece of information on it, but Cassie knows it and she'll be here afterwards. So that's the plug. Now what I'm supposed to be talking about is why can't I trust the Christians with the money? This is the commonest question I get when I go to Africa. Um, I went to Africa on the first occasion against my will uh, after fighting a losing battle with my family. Uh, if I'd known what I knew at the end of the battle, I wouldn't have bothered fighting. But 
Earlier in my career, uh, I was funded by the Wellcome Trust for about seven years. They're a wonderful organization. If they take you on, they take you on. So for seven years, when I tell American researchers this, they won't believe me. But for seven years, I had to write one letter a year of not more than two pages saying what I had done in the previous year, what I intended to do in the next year, and how much it would cost, and they paid. Uh, that's living in an ivory tower. We lived in Jamaica as well because I was studying severely malnourished children with, with several other guys. And we were privileged to actually crack the science for that, uh, which is a great privilege. Um, that came to an end, and I was supposed to have a job in England that was all set up, but Mrs. Thatcher came to power, and so the job was no longer funded, and we call ourselves refugees from Mrs. Thatcher. Um, I was, uh, the Wellcome Trust were deeply embarrassed because they persuaded me to stay on in uh, Jamaica to finish the work because it was important. I was just amused, actually, because they said, well, the money will come back, and I thought, with this lady, it won't come back quickly. But before I applied for anything, uh, Harvard and Ottawa sent me an invitation to come and look at a job. And... Uh, uh, my wife, they, Ottawa smartly sent a ticket for my wife as well as me. Harvard didn't, of course. And so she rewarded them by buying a house on the third day. Uh, <laughs> I said, they haven't offered me the job and I haven't taken it. And they said, they will and you will. And it wasn't an order. She said, we can go to Boston if you want, but we've been there before and you didn't like it and neither did I. I don't want to bring a family up there. And uh, she was right. Uh, I did go to, to Harvard and because I knew the dean at the time. We worked in the same area, Dan Tosterson. And after a few days, I said to him, I can't take a job here because the guys have no souls. People were writing their results in code for fear that someone else would publish them. I can't live in that environment. Amusingly, just a few years back now, my son did the same thing to Stanford for the same reason, without knowing what I'd done to Harvard <laughs> some 30 years previously or 25 years previously. Uh, but I was delighted when he... He got a free ride in the best stochastic analysis program on the continent and he turned it down after a year because there was nobody with a soul that he wanted to work with. And so he came back to his lovely American supervisor in UBC and he allowed him to use his talents uh, to deal with the problem of uh, limited resources in healthcare. Um, so he's got himself a whole new area. But that argument about going to Africa, uh, we took some missionaries out to lunch, which is a dangerous thing to do. At least my wife invited them back home for lunch, and they discovered very rapidly that I knew as much about the treatment of severe malnutrition as anyone in the world at that point. And they said, we have a huge problem, you have to come and help us. And I said, in principle, yes, and under my breath, in practice, no. But my wife and kids said, you're due a sabbatical, we're all coming. Uh, it's a great idea, we all want to go to Africa. Uh, I didn't want to leave the lab. Uh, I wasn't even thinking of using the sabbatical, uh, but I lost. Um, I put about a dozen barriers in the way, and they were just removed one after the other. You know, the airfares will cost too much. Got a new graduate student, marrying into a travel agency, fares halved. Uh, <laughs> and so it went on. I said, well, I've never met the American in charge of the hospital, which we'll use at a base. We might not get on. I, I won't go unless I've met him. And I found myself saying yes to a visiting professorship in, of all places, Indianapolis. I mean, if you're going to do it, a visiting professorship, it should at least be in, you know, Rome or Naples or somewhere nice, you know. But <laughs> Indianapolis? I mean, what is that? Uh, 
but of course, it turned out that that's where the doctor ran the mission hospital was from, and of course, he was on furlough. And he has just about a, as dry and ironic a sense of humour as I do, and we've been good friends ever since, you know. Um, that was another one, Dan. The last one was hilarious. I mean, my last defence was the, the miserable one that we couldn't afford the hotel costs in Nairobi on the way to Central Africa to what was the Belgian Congo, then Zaire, now the non-democratic Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, <laughs> but I was giving a lecture in the University of Toronto on the tr treatment of severe malnutrition, and after the lecture, a very black man came up to me and said, uh, do you ever go to Nairobi? And I said, I'm trying not to. Why? <laughs> and he said, I'm the professor of pediatrics there, and I would love our students to have that lecture. We've never had anything like it. And I said, I've got to get through Nairobi as quickly as possible to keep the hotel bills down. He said, look, if you'll give some lectures in the medical school, I can give you a house for free for as long as you wish. At this point, I gave in. <laughs> I called my dad in England, who was about 80 then. My mother had died. And he's a very patient man. He's dead now. But he said, John, and I told him that we were going to Zaire, what had been the Belgian Congo for many years. And two missionaries had been very important to my parents, had worked there for 50 years. And so I said, we're going to the Congo, Sally and I and the kids, for a year. Um, and he said, John, I've waited 45 years to hear you say that. And then he told me that the proximate cause of my mother's conversion, she grew up in a family, my grandfather was a Marxist trade union leader, so not exactly Christian friendly. Uh, she was smart, but she didn't get an education. She was working class in Britain, and she got a scholarship. My grandfather wouldn't let her take it because he said, I'm having no favourites in this family. So aged 13 or 14, she started working as a seamstress in Birmingham. But by the grace of God, she sat next to a woman who was a Christian, who was smart. She didn't set out to evangelize somebody else. She just loved her and bided her time until after she'd earned her brownie points. She said to my mother, we have some missionaries coming to our church this week. They're interesting. Would you like to come? And she said, I have nothing better to do. I'll come. And they'd gone to the Congo with C.T. Studd. How many of you have never read anything about C.T. Studd? Far too many. Uh, well, WEC, Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, Helen Rosevere in the most recent name you might know. The point about it, it's a faith mission, no salaries. When you go, you pray for everything, including breakfast on occasions. Well, these people have been there for 20 years and God had never let them down. Well, my mother had never heard any story like that coming from the reductionistic background she did. So she was in awe. She went by the next night and the next night she got saved. Now she had someone to write to. Because in those days, the mail still got to the Churi Forest, which it doesn't anymore. Um, so these missionaries knew when she got engaged, when she got married, and when I was conceived. And what my father told me was, they put you, me, on their daily prayer list from the day they heard I was conceived and prayed that I would become a Christian, that I would be a doctor, and I'd go to the Belgian Congo. Nobody ever told me until it happened. That sends shivers up your spine, doesn't it, in a way? Uh, so don't stop praying for your kids who are wandering. Because I went off into the wilderness for a long while as a result of a reductionistic environment in the university which church doesn't provide for. Those of you that come from good churches, ask your youth pastor these whether the people that he looks after, the kids he looked to, because most youth pastors, it seems to me, are providing play therapy. Uh, 
but there are five issues that everybody must be able to deal with before they go to university. They must be able to recognize and deconstruct moral relativism. They must be able to say, I am intolerant and I can show that you ought to be as well in the appropriate circumstances. They must be able to take apart multiculturalism. They must be able to defend a high view of the sanctity of life. And they must be able to defend Judeo-Christian sexual ethics. If they cannot do those five things, they will not get to first base in university. Uh, Certainly anywhere on the East Coast or across as far as Wisconsin on the West Coast and all of Canada. Um, Those are the issues that matter. Nobody will ask them about the inerrancy of scripture because nobody in the university would conceive that anybody would believe that. And so they won't ask that question. And you cannot use the Bible as a starting point because they will not accept the Bible as a starting text. What you have to do with the Bible now is paraphrase it. Then they have to take it at face value. Do not quote the scripture accurately in university because they'll Google it and then they'll scream at you. But if you paraphrase, Google can't handle that. Uh, And there's a very good example for that in the Bible. Any of you know which book in the Bible has most quotations from other books in the Bible? That's right, Revelation. But they're almost invariably inaccurate. They're paraphrases. So if John can do it, so can I, and you. Uh, And of course, if you memorize a text, do you understand it? No. No. If you, if you can paraphrase the text, you understand it. Oh, yes. In fact, it's a better test of your understanding uh, than memorization. Memorization is for children. You should do that in the first seven years. Pack their heads with scripture and everything else that's worth memorizing. That's what the young child is better at than you are. And it's downhill from about five onwards. Uh, so pack their heads with memorization. You, they love memorizing when they're little. Just pack it with good things to memorize. Poetry, scripture, primarily. Uh, Then you teach them logic and then rhetoric. That's the way the medievals did it. The modern education faculty, of course, turns it upside down, which is rubbish, which is why it's a disaster. So, um, back to the main story. Uh, So we went to Africa, and I knew, I'd been following the literature, that there had never been a successful nutrition education program in sub-Saharan Africa in the next 20 years since we left Jamaica. And as far as I know, there still isn't one. There will be soon. It'll probably begin in West Africa, either Ghana or Nigeria, probably. Um, And I'm here today to explain to you why. Um, So I trained my children uh, to run the program for me. So all my kids in their teenage years spent the summer in Africa resuscitating malnourished children. All my children had children die in their arms when they were teenagers. It didn't do them any harm uh, because they saved many more. Uh, Of course, two of them didn't finish high school. They did it by correspondence because you can imagine when they got back from saving lives in Africa, a bad hair day did not seem important to them. Uh, So they had no sympathy with their class who were just, you know, totally navel-gazing, narcissistic North Americans. Uh, So, sorry, Cassie. Uh, You've covered your navel up now, so it's all right. Um, Anyway, uh, of course, it didn't work. Within a year or so, uh, one of the nurses that I had trained uh, to resuscitate malnourished children, uh, in fact, had his own child die of malnutrition. Uh, That was an insult. 
And uh, so I asked him what happened, and he told me he wasn't going to tell me the truth by looking at the ground, not at me, and he gave me the answer he knew I wanted, that the child hadn't been fed properly. Um, but uh, I knew that wasn't what he believed. So I asked my supervisor, I want to know what he really believes. What do you think the answer was? Well, he believed that an evil spirit had taken the child's appetite away. Now, don't laugh at that understanding of the world. Paganism and its belief systems makes better sense of the world than Christianity at first sight if you live in Central Africa, doesn't it? Half your children die before maturity. Your crops fail apparently at random. And you have the worst government in the world. What evidence is there of God of love there? Not much. It takes the Holy Spirit to bring faith into that kind of environment. Uh, but evil spirits make perfect sense. They even explain why the child in that hut dies and the child in that hut doesn't. And of course, immunization, it's not science, it's magic, isn't it? How could a little injection of clear fluid prevent measles? And so there are lots of Africans in Central Africa who go around making a living injecting saline. Because how are the Africans in the village to tell the difference? They can't. The only difference they really tell is, of course, that it's also not clean saline, so they get an abscess. Uh, most of what we do as doctors is easily understood as magic and only with difficulty uh, comprehended as science. If you believe in evil spirits as the basis for what happens in the world, you cannot do science. Because at the heart of science the crown jewel of the history of science only happened in Judeo-Christian cultures. In fact, only happened in the European culture. The Chinese didn't get there, the Indians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, they didn't get there. Because the crown jewel is to do an experiment. And in order to believe experiments, you must use inductive reasoning. You must argue from the particular to the general. Aristotle knew about induction, but didn't trust it for good philosophical reasons. He wanted to deduce from the big to get down to the particular. didn't work. It's too big a problem for us. Uh, I usually tell the story along these lines, which is taking a little liberty with the history, but it makes it memorable and the liberty is small. But to give you a sort of starting point for when science began that at least can destroy the Dawkins of this world, you could set the date at 1277. That's a long time before the Endarkenment. I refuse to call it Enlightenment. It wasn't. Uh, it was in art, but it certainly wasn't in science, and it wasn't for the, the culture as a whole. That was when the teaching of Thomas Aquinas was temporarily banned by the Bishop of Paris. Now, Aquinas was dead at that point, but the Catholic Church worried, as we have worried frequently, that education might destroy faith. I think American... Fundamentalist churches still fear that, don't they? It's not true, of course, uh, if you do it properly, uh, but the correlation is there. And so the Bishop of Paris banned the teaching of Aristotle, but he couldn't do it because it had taken root. They had to obey initially. Oxford, of course, didn't have to obey, so they got a flying start over, uh, over Paris. Um, and so you can imagine what happened if you were a professor in Paris at the time and you'd been teaching Aristotelian uh, deductive logic, and now you couldn't do that. I imagine they went to the pub and drowned their sorrows, so to speak, for a while. Uh, and when they recovered, they said, well, we can't teach deductive reasoning 
but perhaps we could teach inductive reasoning. And because they were Christian, they had a reason to trust it. It would go something like this. God taught us in the Old Testament that we were to have dominion over nature, to understand it and care for it, but we've made precious little progress. None in the last five or six hundred years to speak of uh, from... Uh, in the Christian era, in fact, nothing really happened in science until about the, the, the 12th century. So we're not doing very well. Maybe it's because our minds are not big enough to argue from God all the way down to the particulars. But if God is who we believe he is, then underneath the surface chaos of nature there must be order because he's a God of order. And without that belief you would never do an experiment. As Butterfield put it beautifully, if Newton had not had his God, he would not have gone looking for his laws. And that's absolutely true. Now, once Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler and Newton had changed our understanding of the universe forever, and Galileo in particular had started changing our understanding of what an experiment could provide, uh, everything changed. But at the same time, of course, the Catholic Church had screwed up over Galileo, and so credibility was low. And within 100 years of Newton, you have Laplace, a practicing Catholic, saying to Napoleon when, asking where, when asked where God fits in his science, he said, Sire, I have no need of the hypothesis of God to do science. And that, of course, is what all unbelieving modern scientists say. Without recognizing the history and the absolute necessity of a Christian understanding to make science possible. Now, if you want to read about that, there are two books that are worth reading. Uh, one is David Lindbergh's The Beginnings of Western Science, published by the University of Chicago Press. But you probably, unless you're really interested in history, won't read that. It's a bit too long for evangelicals. Um, <laughs> but there's another one that's just come out not so long ago called For the Glory of God by Rodney Stark from Baylor. And there's a section in there on science where he does it very well. Actually, the whole book is a, a very nice read. He, he's accessible. Actually, David Lindbergh is as well, and you'd do well to read them both because you'd have a lot of material with which to deal with your unbelieving colleagues, and that's what we need to do. Um, so once it had been shown that inductive reasoning worked, you didn't need to believe in God to go on using it because you had empirical reasons for doing it. But it's a poor person who doesn't recognize the intellectual history that made them who they are. But I grew up in an evangelical church that behaved as though nothing happened between the end of the Acts of the Apostles and the 16th century. And that's very sad, isn't it? Because an awful lot happened. To think that I could go through 18 years in church and never hear Augustine or Aquinas or Bonaventure, that's sad. There's no other word for it. Um, if you've never read any of those, start with the confessions. Uh, buy it and put it by your bed, read one paragraph at a time, it will be more than enough for you. Uh, but the book is worth buying for the first paragraph alone because it's got a line in it that you probably have heard and not known where it came from. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's Augustine. Um, end of the first paragraph of the confessions. It's a stunning book and the first real um, book which was a a uh, biographical account of how God worked in a man's life. So, off we went uh, to Africa, 
and I knew I couldn't teach science, and I found that the problem was that the people that I was training were still... They were new Christians in a fading pagan story. When you are converted, you do not change your way of understanding the world overnight. Uh, You still derive those ideas from the culture in which you grew up for a long while. In fact, typically from the arrival of the gospel to the appearance of Judeo-Christian ethics in public policy uh, or in the public arena can be measured in centuries. In Britain's context, the conversion of Britain, the reconversion really, the first century Christianity got to Britain but it was pushed out to the Celtic rim by the the Norsemen and the like. And then Gregory the Great sent missionaries again in the 5th century And very swiftly, Britain, up to the Scots border, the Scots were recalcitrant, of course, um, uh, was converted, evangelized. But it was another three to four hundred years before we had a king who could read and write. The best king we ever had, Alfred, one of the things he did was translate parts of scripture for his people. But that's how long it took. Uh, And we shouldn't be altogether surprised. What I'm talking about, of course, is virtue. Conversion and virtue need to be clearly distinguished, particularly if you're going to do uh, mission work. Uh, I had to think my way through this. I, I, found, I haven't found anybody who's written very clearly about this as far as I can see, and if there is someone, please let me know afterwards. Um, I don't write very much. I, I'm an oral communicator, and you don't read very much, and if I wrote it down, it would be too long, and you wouldn't read it. So um, CDs and DVDs and things do better. Um, the first clue when we went to Africa for the first time was to find missionaries. How many missionaries have we got here, or ex-missionaries? Well, I'd be interested in whether this was typical or atypical, but I found that the missionaries were suffering from spiritual deprivation. They were living on tapes. They didn't even have enough spiritual energy to do their own Bible study. And certainly the most important thing I did on the first trip and then had to do on every trip was to change that for the summer, that I would lead a Bible study every week for the missionaries. Um, That was stunning. Those of you missionaries, does that make sense to you? Have you been through that experience of the dark night of the soul on the mission field? You do your work, but not much subjective joy, quite frequently. And, of course, God doesn't doesn't promise us subjectivity, except when he wants to. One of the big mistakes, I think, in the evangelical church is we use the verb to feel when we should use the verb to think. I don't know of anywhere in the New Testament where you are made responsible for your feelings. What you are made responsible for is what you do with your feelings. But that's an act of the intellect, not an act of the emotions. And certainly in medical school, well, let me ask you, uh, although many of you are straight arrows, what was the longest period that you went through, I'll ask people who are now out in practice, what was the longest period during your time from entering medical school to being established in practice, during which the Bible did not feed your soul subjectively and prayer did not comfort your soul subjectively, if indeed you were reading or praying? What was the longest period? Was it days, weeks, months or years? Three weeks. weeks. You're wonderful. (laughs) Any any advance on three weeks? Month. Any advance on a month? Yeah, it's getting nearer. Any advance on six months? Intern year. Hmm? Intern year. The intern year, yeah. Well, in my case, it was 20 years. Academics, almost invariably, it's a, it's a double digit in years. 
uh, doesn't mean you lose your faith. The important thing to do when you're going through the dark night of the soul is to focus on what you know, not what you feel. And even though you have no subjectivity in your life, you still know that the story is true. As long as that's what you do. Read the Psalms. The psalmist knows all about it. I mean, there are at least three or four Psalms that begin in gloom and end in gloom. God is at work on us. Emotion is very much part of what it means to be a human being. But it's only, I think, a faint shadow of what replaces it in heaven. Does God feel love? Well, I think yes, but no. And by that I mean that God is love. Always. At all times. To the same degree. But we only feel love by comparison with how we feel at other times, don't we? Our nervous system is a comparative system. It compares one thing with another, all the while. God is not like that. He tells us, I don't change. He's always love, perfect love. He is always righteous anger. He's always justice. All these things come from God, and he is them all the while. They're held in tension. And we are, when we see him, John tells us, we shall be like him. I imagine this is part of it. What would it be like to be inside love? That's where we're headed. Lewis puts it beautifully, I think in the Screwtape Letters, he says, he makes no secret of it. Out there, in the sea of his love, there is love forevermore. Um, That's where we're headed. But we have been got at by the endarkenment. We think in post-endarkenment categories. What happened at that point is important to understand. Africans with a bit of providential uh, care can avoid this mistake. And they need something, don't they? I often wonder why we were given the Jews and the the Africans weren't. Because I don't think the church would have survived in Europe if it hadn't been Jewish. Because God had spent 2,000 years teaching them that the Ten Commandments were to be taken seriously. Uh, That includes the Third Commandment, which is not about what words you use, that's what we do, that's in document thinking, it's about keeping your promises. You take the name of the Lord in vain every time you make a promise and break it. That's the real meaning of that commandment. It's not about adding the name Jesus inappropriately, you should never do that, but from your children's point of view, or not your children, maybe some of your children, but what's the commonest breaking of the third commandment for children in America today? That's divorce. Children come into this world hardwired to expect fidelity from their parents, don't they? They have no power. They can get you out of bed. They can get you driving down to emergency. They can do all these things with no power at all. They know that you are there to serve them uh, and to be faithful to them. And divorce is an attack on that. That's why it's so bad. It damages boys much more than girls. Girls have got a drive for family which enables them to overcome it to some extent. But the boys do not wish to do to their sons what was done to them. And if you have gone through divorce, don't expect people to say it's all right. It isn't all right. What happened was bad, it was wrong, because you didn't get proper counselling beforehand. Most of those divorces would not have happened if you had taken the advice of wise Christian folk about what are the criteria that you have to have in place before you marry like it must be a Christian. Otherwise, you're running straight towards disaster. 
And the best thing you can do after divorce is go to your children and say, I'm sorry. They will forgive you, but don't ask them to say that it was good. It may even have been necessary because you made such a stupid match, but it's never good. Now, pediatricians in Canada, at least, have got to the point where they're willing to say that. No child. Have you ever met a child who enjoyed the divorce of its parents? Of course you haven't. It's never happened, and it never will. These are things that are underneath societies that have got to be talked about deeply. This is what's required to enculturate the faith. Virtue and, re- and conversion are different. And we tend to try and explain them in the same language because we are always trying to express the faith in ways that are acceptable to the people around us, and they're all influenced by the endarkenment. That man is rational. The endarkenment denies the fall. It's a utopian vision, and it's wrong for that reason, just like Marxism. And all these utopian visions are wrong. Uh, that's what's wrong with Barack Obama. He has utopian visions. Uh, they, they end in tyranny. Uh, anybody who knows some history knows that. Um, so here we were in Africa, and uh, of course, while my kids were there and I was there, the program ran. I went away for eight months, came back. I'm a scientist. I could measure the decline in eight months. Uh, so I was not putting enough effort into it to satisfy my uh, activist wife. Uh, and she said, what on earth is the matter with you? You should be saving lives. And I said, I'm not here to save lives. I'm here to try and understand this problem. Uh, and she said, looks to me like you're doing nothing. I said, I'm thinking, and that always looks to you like doing nothing. And we had this, <laughs> the standard family row, you know, which we got over. Um, because she won, she said, at least you can do a Bible study for the African graduates who are unemployed. Now... That hit me like a two-by-four over the head. Because if I've had somebody in my class for a year, they might be unpaid in the future, but they should never be unemployed. They should go away with a reading list that cannot be completely fulfilled in an ordinary lifetime. Because I started age six, and they're starting at age 18, so I had a 20-year advance on them virtually, because you read a lot more when you're young. I currently have a grandson who's reading a book a day. You know, that's... There's no television, you see. What a wonderful thing that is. Uh, we never had one. So I said, yes, I'll do that. And she said, you better do Deuteronomy because you're interested. And I did. And God affirmed it immediately by sending a translator who walked a 1,000 kilometers to get to me, and he didn't know why. Uh, that sort of sense uh, prickles up your spine too. And they loved it. Because, you see, Deuteronomy is the passage that accounts Deuteronomy 6 for the survival of the Jews. If you think about it, the survival of the Jews is a miracle. Can you imagine any other culture that would survive identifiable as a particular culture with no homeland for 2,000 years? Now, he did that to Canadians. You know, if I took Canadians to the airport, put them on a plane, I'd be kind, send them to somewhere with English or French. American, it would have to be English. But, and the only condition was they were never going to come back here. How long would they be identifiable as Canadians or Americans? Well, the Canadians are so nice, they'd assimilate in six weeks. Uh, uh, the Americans would take longer, but you wouldn't last 2,000 years. But the Jews did. And not only did they last, they flourished. So that when the real Nobel Prizes, I don't mean the silly ones like peace, but the ones like <laughs> physics and mathematics, uh, when they're announced, they will be won by Jews. American Jews and European Jews, but Jews. How come? And if you ask an Orthodox Jew, 
you will say, go read Deuteronomy 6. Now, some of you heard me talk about this before, but I was asked to do it again, so you've come. It's your fault. So if you've, if you've heard this before, you can remain silent for a moment. But those of you who haven't, Deuteronomy 6 contains the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Now, what comes next? I'll pick on you, and you'll find out why in a moment. You've heard it before, so you don't count. That's, you got off the hook. Very honest of you, too, because you could have answered it correctly, and it would have been wonderful. But thank you. Somebody who hasn't heard it before, what comes next? Yeah, that's half right. You missed one thing, which was also missing the first time I recorded. No, no, there's one thing before that. Yes, that's the Shema itself. It's what follows the Shema. It's this, these things shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. I missed that for a while. But it's the reason the faculty of education is a disaster. Deuteronomy teaches that a teacher must have two loves, two passions, not skills. You must love the subject, and they know whether you do or not, and you must love the child or the the pupil. That's why the faculty of education should be closed down, because the prerequisites are not teachable. They're not within the provenance of the university. Uh, It's an amazing statement. And what it means is... Dad, not mum, dad has the duty of seeing that his children hear all the stories of the Bible from his lips before the age of seven. Now, the reason it's dad is because mum will do it anyway, but children have hypocrisy detectors, don't they? They know when you're being hypocritical. So if dad says this is very important, but he never takes the time to do it, you know what? They don't believe you. So... That's what you've got to do. And Moses tells you what you have to do. You don't have to teach. When your son says, I don't want to do that, you don't give him a lecture. You say, let me tell you a story. And the story you suggest you start with is we were slaves in Egypt. God rescued us, brought us through the Red Sea, through the wilderness and into the Promised Land. We all have that story. It's called conversion or whatever. You tell right the way through how this is the recurrent story of faith. Eden, Egypt, back. Eden, the world, heaven, they're they're all home away and home again stories. You tell those stories and then you can say to your son or daughter, don't you think we should spend at least an hour a week worshipping a God who does that sort of thing? And up to the age of seven, they're honest enough to say yes. By seven, they've learned to rationalise their desires because they've learned it from you. Uh, But up till then, you can do it. Now, what you do when you transmit those stories is you give them the moral reference bank for the future. You probably notice that when you're confronted with a judgment as to whether something is good or evil, you know intuitively what the answer is, don't you? You don't get there by analysis, usually. You know. Um, There are two reasons for that. One is cultural and the other is deeper than that because all societies know that you ought not to do harm, gratuitous harm, to an innocent human being. We all rationalise, unless he's a Jew and I'm a Palestinian, or vice versa, unless I'm a Catholic and he's a Protestant in Northern Ireland, or I'm a Hutu or a Tutsi, and wherever, you know, or pro-choice and pro-life, they'll do harm to us if they can in due course. Uh, we rationalise, but we know that deep down, everybody knows something really quite close to the Ten Commandments. And if you've never read J. Bajuszewski's What We Can't Not Know, get that book, you will find it very useful for 
pre-evangelism apologetics, which is what we're talking about at the moment. Uh, that's how uh, virtue is implanted in a life. So that's why in newly Christianized groups, virtue doesn't come with conversion. Conversion is Christ coming to you and changing the way you look at the world, but he doesn't do magic, does he? You didn't wake up the morning after your conversion suddenly good, did you? Ask your spouse if you think you did. Uh, but there is progress, but it's slow and steady. And every generation should be better than the one before, which is exactly what God promises in Deuteronomy. If you love me, that effect goes from generation to generation to generation. The more generations, the better. We have some friends who can trace back their Christian history on both sides to John Wesley's time with a missionary in every generation. Now, they don't even think some of the salacious thoughts that I think. Uh, my children don't. Uh, they're much better than I am. Uh, there's a streak in me which is far from Christian. Uh, it's less pronounced in them. We all remarkably have rather sharp tongues, but uh, that seems to be a family uh, defect, an inborn error of metabolism or something. <laughs> yeah, but, but virtue is acquired by the narrative you inhabit. Now, the test of how well you inhabit it is how well you know the primary text, the Bible. Because it's those stories that will guide your children in the future. Now, on my website, johnpatrick.ca, there's a test and you can find out how good you are. Uh, there are 60 phrases from the Bible and you have to tell me the story from the phrases. There are no answers. It's very frustrating. Uh, <laughs> And you can't use a concordance to get them, in most cases. Some you can. Uh, because I've chosen the way the words have appeared in English literature. And modern students, of course, don't like Shakespeare because there's a biblical allusion on every page, but they don't recognize it. Therefore, they, although they understand every word, they miss the meaning. I have to illustrate that, obviously, and it's very easy to do. I used to get asked quite frequently to do the Frosh Week lecture for medical students. You know, they want a professor who could be at least vaguely amusing. Um, and I fitted in that category. And one of the things I would say to them is that you're going to be taught medicine from the biopsychosocial model of medicine. And as far as I'm concerned, that model has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And my guess is that now more than one of you know what I've just said. And usually it was about 1%. Now, how many of you know what I've just said Raise your hand if you recognize the biblical allusion in that sentence. Yeah, it ought to be, but you see how small it is. You can look around. It's about less than 10% of, of you who recognize it. Now, a generation ago, it would have been much higher. Uh, my, my generation would have known it. There are reasons for that, because when I went to school in Britain, for 12 years, every day, the Bible was read in school. In fact, in my secondary school, there was a 20-minute chapel service that began every day in a publicly funded school. That was because they were wiser than we'd been in North America. They kept the Bible because you can't understand Shakespeare if you don't know it. Their argument was cultural, not religious. That's the smart way to go. Uh, and, of course, at that age, you rem remember. We especially remembered, of course, all the, the bits of the Bible that we liked, uh, usually the less than felicitous translations that you get, say, in Acts, where that lovely line that all little boys like, certain lewd fellows of the baser kind in the King James Version. We love to think what 
certain base fellows of the uh, certain lewd fellows of the baser kind were actually up to at the time. But uh, uh, we knew the Bible down to that level. So, waiting the balances and found wanting is the story of Belshazzar's feast. The handwriting on the wall, many, many tekel yufasin. So the students thought I was saying that by a social, psychosocial model is a few grams underweight, but what I was actually saying was that it was profoundly, profoundly and profanely inadequate because it pretended to teach medicine as though we were not spiritual beings, and we are. It's totally inadequate, and more inadequate now than it was a few years ago because now most of your patients come to see you because of what they've done to themselves, and therefore guilt is part of the process. And only faith can deal with guilt. There are no medicines. Uh, and yet our schools wonder why they're drifting away from producing good physicians, which they are. It's not a surprise. So you can bring up your children to be virtuous if you make sure they inhabit the story. You cannot make them Christian. Only God can do that. But if you bring up your kids well, they will be good citizens. Now you've got a pre-evangelism opportunity here because if you have colleagues that you work with who are good, uh, but claim not to be Christian, well, when Christmas comes around, give them a present and then ask them, you say, the present is because I appreciate the way you do medicine. Tell me, where did you learn to treat patients like this? And they will stop and think, because they won't have thought about it, and said, well, I didn't do it. I guess it came from my family. And if you trace it back, in most cases, you'll be able to get back within a generation or two <coughs> to either pastors or missionaries or certainly people with a deeply committed faith. And it can be Jewish as well as Christian. Uh, that's where virtue comes from in many ways. Now, of course, our problem in North America today is that we have no agreement about what good and evil are because we have no common story any longer. And that's the mistake that pro-lifers make. They argue as though we have a common story when we don't. What you need to point out is that we have two competing stories. And the one that makes abortion not only rational but inevitable has a lot of consequences attached to it, uh, which they don't actually want. And in the process, you can make the argument that both sides are rational. Now, if you're interested in that, there, is, there are some CDs there called The Pursuit of Justice for the Unborn, I think they're called. The title was... Uh, purposely a little ambiguous because it's used in secular settings. That particular recording is from the University of Minnesota. But uh, it was Wayne State, you told me 10 years ago, was it, that I was first bullied into talking about abortion in public. I refused initially, but the students got on my case, and in the end they said, but we've been praying about it, so I had to do it. <laughs> uh, now, the reason I refused is that I was pro-choice for 20 years. In Darkerman thinking, it got in my head with the idea of problem-solving and rubella babies. I had changed, but I hadn't said anything about it. Now, I gave that lecture at Wayne State, and to my astonishment, it ended in silence with one or two respectful questions. There was one Japanese girl who was a little upset, but then that's not surprising because Japanese women have about seven abortions for every live birth. Uh, they're one of the highest abortion rates in the world, the Soviet Union and, and Japan. Um, but I, I have given that lecture probably 80 times now, from Harvard to California to St. Petersburg to Oxford to Australia. I've never had an aggressive question at the end of the lecture. Not one. It ends in dead silence every time. 
but that's because the argument is about what would you need to believe to be a coherent ethical abortionist. And there is such a thing as an ethical abortionist, but only if they believe that life has no eternal meaning and it carries lots of other consequences. When I debate Peter Singer in January in Wayne State, that's where he will be vulnerable because he's used to people arguing with him and he's going to find I agree with him entirely. But only if you believe there is no God and he can't prove that. And if you believe a God, there is a God, you get an entirely different set of consequences, which I think are rather better, and most people will. Uh, it's a gift, but you need to learn to make the case. The same applies to euthanasia. If you accept choice, then you will accept euthanasia. It will be legalized. Unless the Christian church comes to life and becomes salty again, we will lose this battle. What has started in Washington and Oregon and spread to Montana will seep through the whole of American society because we're not serious in our churches. Uh, it will happen in Canada too. We've preceded you in the legalization of same-sex marriage because our story is too thin and you need to be able to talk about this. The nicest essay I know that would help you to grasp this more deeply is by Stanley Harvas in a book called um, A Community of Character. Um, the first chapter is a discussion of what you might think of as a children's book. Uh, Watership Down. How many of you have read that? Good number of you, right? It's a children's book, isn't it? And more, much more. It's a really good children's book because Dad and Mum can be challenged by it as well. You see, what, what's happening in that book, Richard Adams is using an animal story to discuss something much deeper, much bigger. It starts with the, the rabbits living in a rather Presbyterian warren, if you like, very legalistic and under control of the old men, and they will not be challenged. And, but there's a prophet, and that's Fiverr, who sees that danger is on the horizon and we have to run, and they manage to get away, and they have to find a new warren. Now, on the way, they first end up at an existentialist warren. Eventually, they do found a new fallen Christian warren, if you like, fallen nature but redeemed warren, so to speak. But they have to fight with a Marxist warren to survive. So in that book, you have the discussion of four variants of belief. Now, to the children, it's just a wonderful story of rabbits traveling and having adventures. But to mom and dad, it ought to be a discussion of where am I? Uh, where have I got to? And that's what we have to learn how to do. The bottom line is change your Sunday schools. You don't want this trashy art that happens most Sundays. Children love stories. You must find the storytellers, and the only thing you need to do is teach them the Bible stories and sing a bit, because they like doing that. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize my mother was a brilliant teacher. She had no formal education. She left school at 13 or thereabouts. But for 35 years, she taught Sunday school every week, with two weeks off in the summer for a holiday. And she could teach about 50 kids in a class, ranging from 5 to 12. And she never had any discipline problems because she could sing and she could get them to sing and then she just told them stories, the Bible stories. And she was a brilliant storyteller. I didn't realize that, of course, until years later. She was. That's all you need. And every church has brilliant storytellers, usually not related to education. It's related to the love of children, the love of literature, really. If you want an example, go and visit Mrs. G. Uh, a visit with Mrs. G on 
just put that into Google and you will get to a website. Uh, and the picture on the, the website will show you everybody's favorite granny, you know, with big floral dress, floral pattern dress and a big hat. Uh, she's about 80 now, I think, Welsh. Uh, lovely Welsh voice, and she's a storyteller. And she's recorded most of the Bible stories with a little embroidery, but the essential story is there. She did it originally, actually, because she saw an opportunity in the developing world, because English is a second language. They're always looking for material. So for years, she had a little prayer group, and every time there was an order, they prayed in the money to send these stories by tape to China and where else. All over China, they used Mrs. G's stories for teaching English to Chinese students. And when I came across them, I said, you should sell them to Americans make it, you know, so you can send even more, and Canadians and Australians, and she's doing that now. Um, and I get lovely Mrs. G stories when I'm traveling of uh, what they do to children. Uh, not long ago, uh, I can always spot, spot them. They're, they're usually grannies who I can see, grandmothers uh, in the audience, and I'm going to get a Mrs. G story from them, I can tell, just by looking. And one came up not so long ago, and... I said, you've got a Mrs. G story, haven't you? She said, yes. Um, her grandson, her first grandson, had been taken to the paediatrician, either by her daughter or daughter-in-law, I can't remember which, and of course, routine visit, uh, soon over. Uh, but little Johnny, little Jimmy, disappeared under the couch while mum was talking to the paediatrician. That was over. She said, Jimmy, time to go. And out from under the couch came a little voice saying, you'll have to wait, I'm in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> You all know which story he'd been reading. <laughs> but isn't that lovely? You know, what better gift could you give to your children than that they inhabit the Bible stories? Uh, you can guarantee they will live good lives and hopefully the Holy Spirit will make them Christian lives. Now, I don't know if there are any questions. There is time if you have some. And those of you who are desperate to get out of here, you've had more than enough, just run. Uh, I don't care. Um, those of you who want to get some... CDs, please do, because they're one way we help to pay for the college. Uh, you can take them and make a donation online, because then you'll probably be even more generous, but uh, whatever. Or leave some money now. That's fine. Any questions? Yes? Would you list again the five university musts? Oh, yes. Um, I think they're on my website too, but... Um, Relativism. Really, you need all four varieties, but the one that matters most is moral. But, of course, there's metaphysical, epistemological, moral, and religious relativism all need to be dealt with. But it's the moral one that causes the problems. That's the swamp out of which the other four come. Once you've accepted that, you are not going to be able to deal with the demand for choice. So you get multiculturalism, the sanctity of life, and sexuality uh, popping straight out of there as a... Result and also, of course, the dominant one of tolerance. I hope you've realized that we are an intolerant people. Appropriately so. The Ten Commandments, after all, could be rewritten as the Ten Divine Intolerances. Those things you are to be intolerant of because it is good for society that they should not be tolerated. Now, everybody hopefully still thinks that child abuse is wrong. Uh, they're pushing on paedophilia at the moment that that is not wrong. Uh, they try it about every year or two, and they will win in the long run. The age of consent is brought down, etc. It's all because we're asleep, and we don't know how to make the case. But you ought to be able to make the case about tolerance. And, of course, what the Ten Commandments are, as the last pope put it very beautifully, he said, 
The Ten Commandments are the framework within which freedom can happen. When, those sto- when the Ten Commandments are enculturated in a society, then you know what? You don't have to lock your door. And some of you remember such communities. They still exist, don't they, in the country in some places where everybody still goes to church. You don't need to lock your door. At my farm in the country, there's a car in the driveway that has the key in the car. And everybody knows the key is there if they need it. That's freedom. Ten locks and a satellite tracking device is not freedom. (laughs) Yes? Well, it's a very good question. The starting point has got to be the trivium, which is the medieval understanding of the way God made us, which the education faculty denies. So the trivium starts with grammar, proceeds to logic, and then to rhetoric. Now, grammar is memorization. Now, if you've got children, you know they love memorizing things. They'll even memorize nonsense verse just for the noise it makes. You can't do it. And the one thing that your children can beat you at is memorizing psalms. I'll pay my grandchildren a dollar for a psalm. You know, that's fine. I think it's money well spent. Uh, And they can do it with the greatest of ease. And when you learn those things, they stay with you forever. So poetry is something else that you should teach. It can do stunning things for you. Um, A few years ago now, I was giving the abortion lecture in Harvard. And one of the things that abortion has produced is the animal rights movement. And I can make that case. And I was approaching that point in the lecture, uh, wondering whether I'd leave it out in Harvard because it might just produce unnecessary flack. And then I realized there was a clever way to do it. Um, And I saw, what brought it to mind now is I saw at the University of Louisville where I was lecturing at lunchtime, um, there's one of the seats with a statue on it and the statue is Robert Frost. And it was a poem of Robert Frost that came into my head. Now, Robert Frost is one of Harvard's favorite sons. But like most poets, he understood more deeply than he sometimes recognized because he was a liberal. But uh, he lived on a farm, as you know, and on every farm in North America, and certainly the north part of North America, there are hornets in the summer. And he was fascinated by them. And one summer he went, he was watching the hornets, got too close, got stung. He still went back, but he knew how close he could go. They were white-tailed hornets, so he wrote a poem called The White-Tailed Hornet. And what came into my mind, because I'd learned poetry in the past, I hadn't used it for years, it was ten lines or so from Robert Frost. They, went, they go like this. Won't this instinct, what, he, what happened was he watched a hornet attack a nail in the barn wall thinking it was food. And it took him three goes to find out that it wasn't because he wasn't thinking. It was reflexes. Uh, and Frost realized he'd been anthropomorphizing the hornet. So he said, won't this instinct matter bear revision? Won't almost any theory bear revision? To err is human, not to animal. Or so we pay the compliment to instinct that really takes away instead of gives. Our humor, conscientiousness, and worship went long since to the dogs under the table and served us right for having instituted downward comparisons. As long on earth as our comparisons were stoutly upwards, with gods and angels we were men at least. But once our comparisons were yielded downwards into the mud and even dust, was disillusion upon disillusion. We were lost piecemeal to the animals, like people thrown out to delay the wolves. Only our fallibility was left us, and this day's work makes even that seem doubtful. Now, 
it was fascinating to watch the impact that had on an audience in, in the medical school in Harvard. They didn't expect ten lines of Robert Frost. And, of course, he makes the point perfectly. He understood what was going to happen. He said more than he realized, I think. So put lots of scripture, lots of memory in step one. Times tables. Uh, I've had lots of students over the years who were enumerate uh, because they'd had calculators too soon. They must learn to handle numbers themselves, so they get a feel for what number are, numbers are. My son teaches in the business school in the University of Ottawa now, stochastic analysis and, and st statistics, and he says the students he gets don't understand, they have no feel for number, and his task is to try and correct that error. So playing games that involve numbers, memory, very important. When What's the next question that happens after, would you like a story, please, repeated story, they already know, that's step one. Uh, they're trying to find out who they are. All cultures do this. The story that's repeated will tell you what you get. If the repeated story is the Old Testament, you get Jewish ethics. If it's the Bible, Christian ethics. If it's animal stories, as in Africa, you get pagan ethics. Have you noticed in Nigeria, the stories, and indeed in the Caribbean, of Anansi, the spider, and also of the tortoise, and... Uh, this is a little animal beating a big animal by trickery. A con man is actually a hero in those cultures. I remember having a long discussion with the Nigerian bishops about this. That's got to change. That's why you get all those emails from Nigeria, you know, saying, uh, I've got a million dollars in the bank, you know. Uh, that's a pagan culture. Um, you need to recognize this. Now, of course, the problem with America, what's the repeated story in the lives of most Americans? No, much worse than that. <laughs> Harry Potter's dangerous if it's the first book you read. It doesn't matter if you read the Bible first. What? what? It's television advertising. They're the most brilliant short stories that have ever been written, and they've been written so that they've got your mind. Read Wendell Berry's lovely poem, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Just put that into Google. You'll love it. But he's telling you about that. If you don't believe this is true, go to your Sunday school and make a list of Bible stories. Clues like, you know, who spent some time in a whale's belly, that level, who was born in a manger. And then pollute your mind for an hour or two with your friends and make clues to what's appeared on television advertising the last five years and test the eight-year-olds. They will be close to 100% on the ads and dreadful on the Bible stories. That's materialism. That's, pagan, that's not paganism, it's neo-soft nihilism. I say the, the dominant religion in America, the only one that's growing, is Seinfeldism. <laughs> and that's a religion in which they believe that nothing matters and nothing has consequences, which is neither of which is true. So you, the next question that comes after those stories, repeated stories, is why? At that point, you teach them classical logic. I don't know of a school that does it. We now do it at Augustine College because uh, the students didn't know the basic errors. They don't, rec they don't recognize a false argument. So we teach them to do that. When you've done that, you teach rhetoric, which is how to present, how to engage an audience. And that's gift as well as skill, but you can teach it. Now, your current president is a brilliant rhetor rhetorician. I heard him once, and I said, I'm never going to listen to him again. It takes one to recognize one. I will only read what he says. Now, I was delighted to see that one of the leader writers for the Washington Post agrees with me. 
and after his inaugural address, he wrote, there was no content. This is content-free rhetoric most of the time, and that will kill you, uh, especially since you don't recognize it. So that's, the way, that's what comes first. Uh, as long as you are literate, and if you can, I know it's hard for Americans, but learn a couple of languages. Uh, they're permanent, and mathematics is permanent. You can learn all the science you need in a couple of years. Uh, but literature and languages and poetry and the Bible, uh, mathematics, they're, they're worth the effort. Medievals did that. They were not dumb. A lot smarter than we are because they did the right things. Read Chesterton's Thomas Aquinas if you want a model of what it should be like. Yes? Should we trust Christians? No. No, absolutely not. That's the whole point. You've got the message. <laughs> when 1 Timothy 3, are there any skills in the list of requirements for leadership of the church? You don't remember? Anyone? No, it's all character. I used to think there was one skill, and then Wendell Berry helped me to realize there wasn't. And that's apt to teach. It's in the list of things that you need for leadership in the church, but that's not a skill either. It's a gift. Wendell Berry deconstructs the faculty of education in one sentence of his first uh, Port William novels. It's, it's a love story between a, a great gawky farmer and a little village teacher, one-room schoolroom at the beginning of the last century. And just to give you a sense of how good a writer he is, he can describe Ptolemy, the farmer, in one sentence in a way that gives you a mental picture immediately. He says, Ptolemy was a big man whose clothes looked as though they had been taken by surprise 20 minutes after he put them on. Now, you know exactly what sort of man. You may be married to one. Uh, I mean, I get close. Um, it's, he, he was, as he goes on and says, he, his farm was 99 acres and he never coveted even the extra one. He was a good man. And he noticed the village teacher and thought what a wonderful wife she would make. And the village teacher noticed him and thought what a wonderful husband he'd make, but they didn't realize they were made for one another. So it's a beautiful story, uh, the story of how they came to find the truth. But Miss Minnie, he describes thus, he says, Miss Minnie went to teacher's college where she learned many cunning techniques which she never subsequently used because Miss Minnie loved children and she loved books and she taught by merely introducing the one to the other. If you've never read a Wendell Berry novel, go and buy Hannah Coulter or... Uh, Jaber Crow that are in the bookshops at the moment. Uh, for the women, buy Hannah Coulter first. For the men, probably Jaber Crow first. But uh, just beautiful books. Um, wonderful stories. So you don't trust the Christians because what matters for leadership in the church, according to Paul, is all character. You hire skills. But you don't allow skills to tell you what to do. Character tells you what to do. You hire skills. So you need an accountant, but not to be in charge of the money, but to do the accounts. What happens to the money should be in the hands of people of character, Christian character. And that's the problem in Africa, you see, because that takes two or three generations. Because in Africa, which comes first, loyalty to family or truth? It's loyalty to family, isn't it? That is pagan ethics. People think that they're corrupt. No, they're not corrupt. They live in a different ethical system. But the problem with village ethics, where, patient, where family comes first, is that you send that guy off to the big city as a prime minister and he'll rob the whole nation. In the village, he can only go so far because he's got to live with those people. 
but like, uh, what's his name in Kenya? Uh, he, he was called Mr. 5%, was it? He took 5% of every grant that came into Kenya. Um, and, you know, Mobutu, who was worth over $5 billion when he finished ripping off the Congo. You know, that's the way it is. Cyril Ramaphosa in South Africa is so rich that you can't have got there by fair means. And uh, I've no doubt that Zuma will go the same way. Uh, no, it will change. The Anglican bishops in Nigeria have made it there straight. I loved meeting with them. And the government would like them to take over the schooling system, but they know they can't handle it all yet. But this is where we come in when we present character in a way that makes sense. Any other questions? Yes. Th those that need to go, please do. Some of you are coffee deprived, I'm sure. What do you think is the best way to like teach uh, medical students that are actually in medical that have that lack of knowledge that they should gain? The question is about teaching medical students. What should we need to do? I think we're going to take a break, and I'll talk to you about that. Well, uh, there are five at the end. This one's two, so ten, and this one's two. That's 90 minutes, three hours of uh, discussion of music by Jeremy Begley, which is brilliant. So we really need a, a decent uh, contribution to that. These are only three. They're not me, uh, but I bought them for three, so I'll sell them for three. You, can you go and look?